Say, look, it's Ringo. Yeah. Hello, kid. Hello, Curly. Hiya, Buck. How's your folks? Oh, just fine, Ringo, except my grandfather came Shut up. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, after what seems like millennia, we have finally started the 1939 nominees. And 1939 is considered by critics to be the year that film became great, which you would not know by our first movie. <laughs> I, You know, I'm not going to be that harsh on it. You texted me really disliking this movie. And like... For sure, this movie does not pass the screen test of time, given that the entire plot of two-thirds of this film is racist against Native Americans, the movie. Yeah, yeah. And the other third is, all oh, that the Confederates were still gentlemen. Oh, <sighs> uh, to be fair, that guy's a piece of shit and you're kind of happy when he dies. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But they do try to give him this, like, redemptive death, and I'm just like, no, fuck that dude. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess really what it probably is is that, oh, I should say what movie we watched. Yes. We watched Stagecoach. Yes. <laughs> Which is one of the first movies with John Wayne. It's apparently his, like, breakout role It was this movie. And I would say that probably the disconnect here is that I like Westerns and you don't really care for them. So my bar is higher. I mean, like, listen, I like some Westerns and I mostly like Westerns that are significantly different from this because this is like the most bog standard Western ever. Ugh. But I will say like one, unlike in old Arizona, they've learned how to film outside. <laughs> They figured it out. That's true. That's true. Though it does have a stagecoach, which typically is a thing that really bothers you. Wait, I'm bothered by the existence of stagecoaches as a thing we've established? Have I been like they're the boats of the land or something? <laughs> no, but like one thing on Fuck This Movie Bingo that you suggested was random stagecoach scene. Well, yes. But I guess, to be fair, it's not random when the movie is literally called Stagecoach. It is more that thing where movies in the 30s a lot would try and invoke the sense of the pioneers by just having these random one-off characters in a covered wagon going like, Ah! The, the Horizon! And then, like, cut to the actual movie. 30 years later. <laughs> <laughs> right. The abstract concept of traveling by stagecoach does not inherently offend me. And in fact, I think kind of the best thing about this movie is that the premise just works, right? You've got this collection of people that don't want to be together, but have to be together because they're forced through the logistics of travel to travel together. Yeah, I mean, it's Shanghai Express in a coach instead of a train. Right. That works pretty well. What doesn't work is that the threat is even more racist than the threat in Shanghai Express. And I think that the characters are less charming. You know, it really runs the gamut. And I think you, I mean, like, this is our just longstanding Shanghai Express argument of just like, a really good outfit is not a character. <laughs> I'd completely take issue with that statement. <laughs> 
But that, like, there was a real range in Shanghai Express, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I didn't find any character in this movie that I felt had any sort of complexity. They were much more archetypical than the ones in Shanghai Express that often were presented as having, like, purposely conflicting personality qualities. And in this, they were much more... It was much more black and white, I thought. And when they attempted to introduce some kind of, like, complexity, as in John Carradine's character, Hatfield, who was the Confederate guy, were like, oh, but this guy who fought for slavery and is an inveterate gambler has a gentlemanly demeanor toward literally one person, so I guess he's not so bad after all. I was like, mm. I don't know. I don't know that that is the moral of him. I think this movie is extremely skeptical to uh, outright disdainful of that character. Uh, One, there's the weird scene that kind of implies he was just robbing the Confederates blind. That like, even though he's like, ah, that was, he was a great man, the general, the general. Ah, there's a scene that's like, but then you like fucking took his stuff. Like, when going got tough, you abandoned honor and just stole a bunch of shit because the honor was always a fake put on. Oh, I totally got the impression that because the crest on that silver cup was Greenfield and his name is Hatfield. I thought it was that he was like traveling under an assumed name. See, because there's the whole thing of like, she specifically knows the the Greenfields. She like knows that house and knew them. I mean, she knows of them, but I don't know how much she like knew every member of the family. And for me, that whole exchange was like, Oh, you're one of them. Oh, see, I definitely read that as because he talks about knowing the Greenfields and that she knows the Greenfields. And so it's not like oh, Greenfields, I never heard of him. He comes up with this story about having just won it in a bet. And so he has no idea the provenance of this item, which I took as just that he ran off with a bunch of shit. Oh, okay. I totally interpreted that because she didn't seem turned off by the whole experience that she assumed that he was one of them and for some reason was traveling under an assumed name because otherwise he would bring shame to his family because of his gambling habit or whatever. I don't think so. And I don't think so because of the other thing that complicates him, which is that weird last scene right at the end of the chase where he, like, points a gun at her head and is gonna kill her. Which is, like, I know for honor or whatever. Just, like, it'll be better for her this way. Mm-hmm. But is also such a fucking cowardly way out shitty thing to do when he gets... The Wikipedia summary says no one died. But my read on that, like, is the guy with the arrow in him lived, but the, that dude totally did die. He totally died yeah he had like a spear all the way through his body oh no or like his head or i, I don't yeah. know he was like some giant thing much bigger than an arrow went through that dude that whole thing is wild i mean the thing i think is shitty about this is that like we don't actually need the plot summary the whole why everyone is on this stagecoach why the cavalry isn't there is just like the indians have gotten all riled up by geronimo heavy sigh (sighs) that they're gonna be attacking anybody going through on stagecoach And we have this collection of characters 
that I honestly think the movie does a pretty good job in the first 15 minutes setting up who these people are, getting them all on the stagecoach together, why they wouldn't like each other. One thing that was really weird to me, so Claire Trevor plays Dallas, who is a prostitute, and Mm -hmm. Claire Trevor also was the prostitute in Dead End, the ex-girlfriend of Humphrey Bogart's character. And again, they never actually say that she's a prostitute. And it took me like a really long time in this movie to be like, why are they throwing her out of town? What is her problem? Why is everyone such an asshole to her? And then it was like, oh, okay, I get it. See, I had the exact opposite experience where I was like, they keep making it so obvious that what you're supposed to think is she's a prostitute and then never actually saying it that it took half the movie for me to let go of the idea that there was some secret other plot with her and that she was just like a prostitute and the Hays Code wouldn't let him say it. Yeah, I mean, that was essentially my feeling is like, well, I mean, maybe she's a maybe she's a prostitute, but they're never saying it. So like, what is her terrible secret past? Yeah. And then, it, and apparently, it was you know she she was a sex worker. Yeah. Woo. Whatever. Like that's so whatever. The Hayes Code. Yeah. What can you do? It's whatever. Then there's the high class woman Lucy Mallory who's trying to see her husband who's in the army, and those are our two female characters. Try and make them last because they're all you're gonna get for the whole fucking movie after the like women's temperance league leaves five minutes in. There also was the uh, Apache woman, and I'm putting that in quotations. Oh right, played by Alvaro Rios, who was Mexican. Yeah, but that whole thing. Then you've got the drunk doctor who's getting kicked out of town with Dallas. You've got Buck, who's the driver, who's the the friend from A Star is Born who always talks like this and is kind of nervous and you think he's alcoholic, but he only sometimes is. Andy Divide. Yep. And then you've got the marshal who is there to bring in John Wayne, a.k.a. the Ringo Kid, a.k.a. the least threatening nickname in all the West. Yeah, but do you think that's because we just associated out with Ringo Star or... Because every time anybody was like, come on, Ringo, I would giggle. Yeah, for sure. I do think that, like, time has not been kind to the nickname The Ringo Kid, but I also think it's just one of those, like, try to make fetch happen things where it's like, well, yeah, that's never going to go down as good as Butch and Sundance, right? Like, that, that, like, <laughs> that just, you're just screwed from the get go. Like, you can only do so much with new Coke. Or old Coke in this situation. Uh, yes, indeed. Then we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Like, because now we're getting to the ones where I watched this movie four days ago and I'm having real trouble remembering. There's the one that's the whiskey distiller that everybody thinks is a priest because he has a priest collar. Who has no role in this movie. No, he just exists to get shot by that arrow in Act 3. Yeah. Then we have uh, the Confederate gambler guy whose whole deal... I am honestly not clear on. Like, I really don't want to go to the map for my interpretation of of stuff I was giving you earlier, because I just don't know what his deal is, because the movie does kind of 
seem to want to have its cake and eat it too. It's definitely racist already with all the Apache stuff, so I don't want to give it the benefit of the doubt, but it does also have John Wayne, our ostensible star, constantly going, you mean the war for reunification, whenever the guy is like the war of northern aggression. That like John Wayne is very clearly like, hey, you know who fucking sucked? The Confederates. Every single time that guy opens his dumb mouth. <laughs> Yes, that's true. John Wayne does do that repeatedly. And then the banker guy. Oh, right, the banker guy, who exists to just be... In a thing I actually think is kind of delightful, all of his monologues are like, who wouldn't trust the banks? The banks will never fail. No one will ever be angry at bankers because of a failed bank run that entirely ruins the U.S. economy in exactly 49 years. Meanwhile, he's on the stagecoach specifically because he's running away from town because he's embezzled a bunch of money from the bank <laughs> yes. that he has in like a little safe that he keeps on his lap at all times. Yes. He's really just there to be a comment on how banks are bad and otherwise is not a character. But see, like, that's what I'm talking about where like all of the people in this movie are just archetypes because he's like the greedy banker and Dallas is like the hooker with the heart of gold. And Lucy Mallory is like, I don't even know what she is. Yeah. Oscar's angry about it. Yeah, I I mean, I agree with you, largely. I think there's here and there some moments where some depth is added, but I think really outside of John Wayne and Dallas, nobody gets a full-on, like, inner life in this film. And, like, you can really see how this becomes episodic television. Like, how you get Wagon Train is just this but you, like, sub some people in and out every week, right? There's just, like, there's a new person on the wagon train. Right. It's done. And then you don't have to care because then they're gone in 40 minutes. But the weird thing about this film is that, like, it's like a random episode of Wagon Train, but you have to stick with them for an hour and a half. And, like, who are half of these people doesn't matter. Like, Lucy Mallory's whole plot line is she was secretly pregnant. That's the that's her whole thing. And what's so weird is that from the beginning of the movie, she seems like she's going to be our star and the focus of the whole thing. And she's come from Virginia to join her husband, who is part of a regiment or something that's out in the West somewhere. And I kept wanting there to be like something there. You know, like, why is she so gung-ho on going to join him? Yeah. And, like, I guess it's that she was pregnant and wants to, like, have the baby with him, have him there when she has the baby. But, like, that's... I think the problem with this is not that no one is ever developed, but people are developed in that episodic television way of they have their big monologue where they're developed. Like how the drunk doctor has his, I don't know if I can doctor again, I've seen some real shit, but I'm gonna go in there and do what I have to. And then, like, that's the whole thing. Like, that's really all he gets. Yeah, and honestly, for me, like, he was probably the most sympathetic character other than Dallas. The Ringo kid, I suppose, is sympathetic in so much as, like, I didn't, I, I didn't dislike him. I didn't find him to be annoying or, like, hugely problematic. Right. But the only reason why I think he has an inner life is because there's so little that comes out of him. <laughs> Whereas everyone kind of talks and says nothing except for him. And Dallas has an inner life, but she also, like, 
rips open her guts and shows them to you constantly. <laughs> right. Like, he has an inner life in that the plot is about him most thoroughly. Right. He's got this, like, mission of revenge he's on. He's an outlaw, but, like, he came from a hard family and, like, was going to jail when he was 17 and, you know, honestly would never rob a civilian, like that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, he seems to be generally a good guy. He's totally, like, okay with sex workers because he's nice to Dallas and everybody else is shitty. Yeah. Everything I think is deep about his and Dallas's relationship is one of those accidental Hays Code things. For a lot of the movie, clearly her belief is he's just such a dipshit, he doesn't get that she's a sex worker. Right. But I think that last scene where she, like, walks him to the, you know, loud piano music playing house on the bad side of town and goes, see, see? And he's like, I asked you to marry me and you never answered. Is great because there's this level on which the movie doesn't ever let you know whether he put it together and immediately made up his mind that he didn't care or had known the entire time. Mm -hmm. And on a certain level, it doesn't matter. This movie, I am going to give it more credit than you, more because of little moments like that. There's also the great moment with the doc talking down the bad outlaw at the end of Act 3. Right. There are these little bits and little exchanges that really play, but mostly it's like an unusually well-written episode of a mediocre TV show. Like, there really isn't a lot here. There isn't a lot of depth to most characters. The plot is just they keep trying to get to a town where they won't be attacked by Indians and learn that the cavalry has already moved on to the next town. And they got to keep going and it gets more dangerous. And then they finally get attacked by Native Americans in a bad sequence, a technically impressive sequence. Like weirdly, the sequence that is why this got nominated is they managed to pull that off. But also by the 1950s, people were doing that on a weekly TV budget constantly. Like it's not that impressive. Yeah, I guess that there were crane shots was kind of a like, holy shit. Yeah, there were crane shots. They were like doing decent tracking shots of the horse's good sound design outdoors. Yeah. The thing about in old Arizona is that it had to not be a Western because you couldn't do a Western yet. It kept doing these weird things where like people would go inside or people would go like, you know what I'm going to do when we go outside is... Because you couldn't shoot outside or at least you couldn't <laughs> talk in a discernible way at all. Right. This is recognizably a Western. The big problem is it's like the Tim Burton Batman of Westerns in that, like, eventually people learned out how to do something in that space rather than just make it. Right. It does work recognizably as a Western film. There are some good performances in here and there's the occasional interesting scene. But it's like if It Happened One Night was more trouble than it was worth. That section of us talking about It Happened One Night where we were like, of course, all the problems of romantic comedies are already here, <laughs> was like two thirds of the podcast. I, I yeah, I, I, you're you're right. You're not wrong that there are some obvious technical achievements here, and that it is much tighter than previous westerns that we've watched for the podcast. I just found it to not be engaging. You know, I I disagree a little. I found it engaging in the sense of. I thought this was going to be hard to watch in a very different way than it was. I thought when you really disliked this, that the way it was going to be hard to watch 
was just that it was going to be plotted very badly. And actually, in terms of, like, the structure of this thing, it's actually plotted pretty well. It moves at a decent clip, both figuratively and literally. Yeah, I mean, that's true, but it's like it moves from scene to scene at a decent clip, but I don't care about anything that happens within the individual scenes. I mean, that was really my issue, because I would, like, go back and watch something again and be like, did I miss something really important? And I I didn't. It was just like, oh, well, Lucy Mallory is offended that Dallas dared to sit at the same end of the table as she did. I guess it is difficult to pull off that kind of class-based structure, I think, within the setting of a Western and to have that tension feel like something important. Uh, yes, there is a bunch of stuff I think you can latch onto with certain characters where it's like, when do you get to the second beat? Oh, never? Just like, when does Lucy Mallory start taking laudanum or something? Right, Like, right. you know, when does she do anything? Other than be surprised pregnant. Right. Which even that is not handled in a way where it's like, oh my gosh, she was surprised pregnant. It's like, oh, turns out she's pregnant. I, to me, the weird thing about that scene was like, Dallas keeps giving everybody the weird looks she gives everybody all the time. So I was like, was Dallas secretly surprised pregnant? But why would Lucy be covering it up for her? So it must act like, why would Lucy and the doc care? Right. So it must actually be Lucy's kid. But like Dallas is holding it and having a big like, like, I guess that's just to prove she can be motherly, even though she's a sex worker, which fuck this movie sometimes, a lot of the time, most of the time. But I think to me, the big difference is I cared about fully four of the characters on this stagecoach. Hey, which ones? Other uh, than Dallas and Ringo, obviously. I cared about Dallas. I cared about Ringo. I cared about Doc. And I really came around on the Marshall. I think the Marshal is unfortunately saddled with Buck, our comic relief character who is never funny. Never! It's not Andy Devine's fault. He was hired to do that Andy Devine thing and he does it. It's just never funny. And it's never useful to have a character who whose one quality is just annoying. Would like the plot to stop happening, but then it's, of course, the plot's going to keep happening. Yeah. I think one of the few vaguely morally complicated things about this movie is actually the Marshall's view on morality. You would think from the way he is so gung-ho about catching the Ringo kid that he'd be like, a, he did the crime, he's got to do the time. I don't give a shit if he's guilty or not. Nope, extenuating circumstances don't matter to me, guy. Where he's really just like, I have to make this shit up as I am going along. And right now, my belief is John Wayne is going to get himself killed pointlessly and make a whole bunch of other people get killed pointlessly. I found that interesting. They're also the only people the movie seems to care about in Act 3. Once you get into the town and have the big shootout with John Wayne. Right. Everybody else just disappears from the fucking movie. Henry Gatewood is taken away for being a terrible banker. Samuel Peacock is going off to, I guess, not die of that giant fucking, like, battering ram through his chest somehow. Because they keep going like, you're going to be okay, buddy, in a way that doesn't seem like a World War II movie lie. Like, it seems like they actually believe he'll be okay. Hatfield's just dead, I'm very sure. He has to be. And Lucy Mallory goes off to be with her husband and show him their kid. That's a thing that really bugged me, actually. 
is there's this whole thing where they say that oh her husband has been injured and obviously like the Hatfield guy has been flirting with her a bunch and I was like oh okay so like her husband is gonna die and they're gonna get together and be horrible ex-confederates together that's really what it is is you're talking about how like when does beat two come it feels like so many of these characters were set up for something that never arrived like what happens with Samuel Peacock? What's his deal, you know? I agree, but I also feel like that's what I'm saying about, like, this movie is so hurt by the screen test of time. Because what this movie does is this movie is just 100% save the cat, like, beat for beat, how you make a Western. Like, it is baby's first Western. It sets down the template so thoroughly that all you can think watching it now is... So when do you deviate from the fuck? Like, where does it swerve? Every Western is defined by how it swerves from this thing. And this thing just never swerves. Except for the whole Native American battle. It's not a Western so much as it is, like, the people who are incompatible traveling together movie. It's a Western. It's about a guy who feels drawn by revenge into a no-win scenario that he feels he has to do for honor. There's a gal. The gal just complicates things. And, like, it does it does shit tons of Western stuff outside of just the chase sequence with the Native Americans. It kind of does too many of those things and doesn't examine any of them. Like, all of these characters become Western stock types. I don't think any of them... I don't think most of them are considered Western stock types until, like, this kind of makes them that. Right, and I understand what you're saying about the revenge thing, but that's not really what our plot is. He is one of seven or eight people who are in this stagecoach, and he shows up late. Yeah, but, like, the only reason this is happening the way it is is because of the Ringo Kid. He shows up late, but in that way where, like, everybody's always talking about the Ringo Kid. Whenever Poochie's not on screen, people should be asking, where's Poochie? The Marshall's whole plot is the Ringo Kid. The Ringo Kid is mentioned, like, five minutes into the movie. Uh, you don't see him until like 25 minutes in, but... Yeah, no, I mean, I, I and I understand that, but I'm just saying, like, I don't think that this is the template. I think that this movie has some stuff that will be put into the later template for Westerns, but I think that it suffers actually from not being so clearly a Western. I don't know. I disagree. The entire last 20 minutes is so, like, a Western. When they get into town is when it becomes... Yeah, but you've already had over an hour of the movie at that point. <laughs> well, sure. But, like, it's not like there's no Western beats before that. That, to me, is when it becomes, like, undeniable that, like, this is the template for the modern Western, is this thing of, like, the big shootout. Is he going to show up to the big shootout? What's going to happen at the big shootout? What's going to happen with him and the girl? That, like, all of the stagecoach stuff has largely been building up to that. That's been, like, our B-plot for the whole movie. Figuring out his backstory, figuring out why he wants to go to this town, what he's trying to do. They killed his family and now he's got to get revenge or whatever. I don't know. This is widely regarded as setting the template for the Western, and I I see it. I think the problem with it is more that, like, so what? <laughs> From a 2019 perspective, I will give it that credit, but, like, this is the screen test of time. 
And the screen test of time is not about giving it that credit. It's about saying, like, what makes later Westerns more engaging is the ways that in taking this basic bare bones plot of, like, going to one location to a different location with these stock types and then having a shootout becomes a metaphor for different things. And you, like, examine different characters and and care about different characters and why they are doing this for different reasons. And, like, none of that's here. Nothing is morally complicated here. The most morally complicated thing is that the marshal lets the Ringo kid get away at the end. And, like, that's not that morally complicated. He's fucking John Wayne, and he seems like a great guy. Like... Yeah, well, and I think, actually, that nails exactly what the problem is for me, is that the Ringo kid is only on paper an anti-hero. In no other way is he actually, like, he doesn't seem tortured by the fact that he had a bad family. Like, he smiles like a fucking kid in your college class who's on some, like, club sport team and shows up in soccer flip-flops in winter with khaki shorts on. He has an inner life only so much as we are told that he does. And there doesn't seem to be, like, any amount of pain He has no pain. He has the most cliched inner life pain tortured thing ever, which is- No, but he doesn't show any of that. That's what I'm saying. He's only an anti-hero on paper. Like, oh, okay, well, technically he is, like, wanted for killing people and he's out to do revenge or whatever. But it's like, who- who is this guy? He shows it through his actions! Through what actions? Because he decides to go shoot these people we've been told he's gonna shoot the whole time? <laughs> yeah, instead of giving all that up to be with Dallas. Of course, he gets to live anyway, because this movie does not- it, This movie wants to be crowd-pleasing in a way where it won't just, like, shoot John Wayne and go, like, life sucks. <laughs> And, but like, that's the core thing is everybody keeps telling him if you do this, like, you don't, you're gonna die. And like, he's gotta do it anyway, because he's tortured about his brother. Except that I don't buy that he's tortured. I guess that that's what I'm saying is like, sure, on paper, he is our anti-hero who's like doing a bad thing, but doing it for the right reasons and we're on his side. But he's no Humphrey Bogart. I, I don't know. I, I buy it. I don't think he is tortured by it in the sense of, like, letting it all hang out. I don't think he is trying to give a performance that's, like, you can see him struggling with it every day. And, like, I don't need that. I honestly kind of find that boring. Well, yeah, but if you're not going to have that, don't tell me that it's happening and not show it. I don't think that's what they're telling you is happening. I think they're telling you that, like... Tortured, and I didn't see any of that. <laughs> well, I I don't think what is happening is the inner life kind of torture of a, like, he's struggling with the thing every day. I think he's tortured by the, like, my whole family is dead, and now all I have is this revenge. I kind of got that this was a dude on autopilot. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I definitely got that, but I didn't find that to show me that there was a reason for this. It was just like, nope, that's what I'm supposed to do, so I'm going to do it. I didn't get that he was actually tortured by the death of his family, I think is really what it is. And like, this is a guy who was arrested and thrown in prison when he was 17, and he's got no rough edges. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think that that's... I think there's two things that you're arguing there. One is the rough edges thing, which I think is more defensible because he has rough edges in 1939 terms, which is like he'll talk to the sex worker. Yeah, but like I've seen other movies with John Wayne and he is capable of being like 
gruff. Right. Which he's not here at all. Uh, He's, like, very sort of fresh-faced and 24. Right. The, like, most gruff he is is that he gets into, like, an antagonistic relationship with the marshal. And mostly that's just like, well, of course he did. Yeah, but every time that he does, he has this, like, shitty, cutesy grin. Yeah, and, like, I I don't know, I think- Which I found to be charming, but I also found that to be, like, inconsistent with the idea of him being tortured in any way. Because I was like, why don't you punch that guy? Again, I think- I think that, like, the tortured is, like, I don't think a- about him having to be a like moody broody piece of shit all the time like i to me that is why i don't like westerns very much is how much i have to endlessly sit through this guy going like what is it all it's all changing around me for like two straight fucking hours every time and then he gets shot because he's a dumb fuck that doesn't other- understand everything's changing around well i mean that's not every western but it's like two-thirds of them I mean, sometimes it's just that they're, like, mean badasses who go out and shoot people. And, like, I, I'm maybe, maybe tortured is not the right word, but I think there is a long tradition of, like, this guy doesn't know what to do besides this. He needs this in a weird way. That, like, he's gotta, like, go and shoot these guys that killed his brother. Not even, like, a man's gotta have a code, but just, like, literally for an absence of better ideas. And that kind of worked for me. Oh, okay. We obviously can disagree on a movie since we do. (laughs) Yeah. I think the thing is that, like, you're right. That's the last 20 minutes of the movie, which is two tenths of the film. I'm really not going to be arguing for, like, a seven or some shit when we get to rating this movie. I think I liked it more than you did, but in ways that I think largely have to fall by the wayside because of the screen test of time. This movie is pretty good to me, despite the racism. That's not what we do here. Yeah. Also, it's pretty good to me, despite a lot of other movies doing this much, much better than this movie does, which is definitionally not what we do here. Right. Yeah. Do we have anything else we really should talk about before we rate it? Um, I don't think so. I mean, we touched on the fact that the cinematography is actually, like, quite good. And in that, I'm not going to argue with you. Like, the cinematography actually is quite good. In addition to the outdoor scenes, which are impressive, even by, like, today's standards, they're up to snuff by today's standards. I wouldn't say that they're, like, mind-blowing or anything. Yeah. But they didn't stick out to me as, like, oh, honey, you don't know how to do this yet. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Which a lot of things that we watched do. There were some good indoor shots as well and some interesting indoor shots. Like, the first shot of when they stop to have lunch or dinner or whatever and they're in this house with a long table and you have a shot that's, like, from the corner and pointed up. Yeah. Like, that was a pretty interesting choice. But really, for me, like, those were the only things that I could latch onto as finding to be terribly interesting. So that's all I have to say about it. That's fair. The last thing I have to say about it is that, like, in talking about the terrible racist stuff they do with the Apaches, we're kind of skipping over the terrible racist caricature of a Mexican man that's married to an Apache woman that you meet briefly in Act 2. Oh, yeah. That is also pretty dire but like again i think this movie is more interesting for structurally being a like signpost on the way to making much better westerns than this movie 
And I guess we should rate this film. Yeah, you, you go first. Uh, f- four? Four. I want to go up to a four. Okay. I'm going to give it a two. Okay. <laughs> for all of the reasons I've already given. But you can go ahead and explain your four. Um, I mean, my four is just this... Like, listen, this is racist. It doesn't quite come together. I don't care about all of these characters. I care about some of these characters, and the cinematography is very good, is essentially the breakdown for Shanghai Express. Yeah, I mean, the the cinematography is not intentionally painterly in this. It's just very, like, it's filmic. It's very good in a film way. It's not stylized, which is not necessarily, like, a knock against it at all. I'm just saying, like, the reason that I preferred Shanghai Express was because it did some interesting things with, like, the play of light and dark and shadow. But that, that's fine. <laughs> but I not to the same degree. Like, I think Shanghai Express has better cinematography, but I think this movie also does some interesting stuff with light and dark and shadow. It is not totally without value on that end. I found a couple of the characters compelling, and, like, to me, a two is, like, this got left in the wastebasket of history and good is like a two or a one. And like, this didn't get left in the wastebasket of history, clearly. It inspired an entire generation of television, a genre for like 30 years. And like, the Wikipedia page talks about Orson Welles watching this movie over and over before he made Citizen Kane, which you can kind of see. It's not one-to-one. I will not claim this movie is a proto-Citizen Kane. It's not, except for that one shot coming from the ground. That's basically the most Citizen kane thing about it, is putting the camera in the corner near the ground. But I think that if we're going to make a screen test of time argument here, it's that this structure survived. One of the things that makes the cinematography of Shanghai Express so striking is that we kind of left that in the past. It turned out to be really hard to do that. Yeah, but so what if it's hard? If it's good, then I don't care if no one ever did it. I don't think you're seeing this as good because it's just the air we breathe around us. What this does good, every movie does good now because this- I don't think it does any of the things that you're arguing it does good well. I think that it- Not even this, like you've already made the argument that the cinematography- The cinematography, but that's that's not what makes a Western- the thing is, like, you can have, uh, I mean, I hate to, like, make this comparison because it's probably way too big of a comparison to make, but when people argue that Christopher Marlowe is actually, like, a phenomenal playwright because otherwise we wouldn't have Shakespeare without him, I don't think that Marlowe is that good of a playwright. His characters are really cardboard, they yell a whole lot, like, they're not terribly complex, Yeah, we wouldn't have Shakespeare without Marlowe, who thought that he was not as good as Marlowe. And obviously, like, we wouldn't have Citizen Kane without Stagecoach. But that, to me, doesn't mean that the thing itself is good. I think it would be like if Marlowe wrote a play that was almost the exact plot of Romeo and Juliet, but then... Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet with way better dialogue because Marlowe couldn't write dialogue to save his life. It is true. Yeah, it's terrible. He's not very good of a... Yeah, but pretty good spy. Uh, Well, I mean... Until he wasn't anymore. 
Which is always how it goes with spies. <laughs> Obviously not that good, <laughs> since he was murdered in a pub for it. Fine, fair. But, the but, better spy than Shakespeare, unless... <laughs> what, my, what my spec script presupposes is... Sorry. Anyway, this thing. What I'm saying is, I think what this movie does well that you're not giving it credit for is stuff that, like, isn't that. Like, the dialogue in this movie isn't very good. The characters are not very well developed. What you don't like about this movie, you are correct to not like about this movie, but I think you are throwing out with that these, like, guideposts for later movies. You're correct. <laughs> I am throwing them out. <laughs> I don't think you should. I think, I think that is actually important, whether or not it's, like... Clearly, I don't think it's important enough that, like, I think this... It seems like a real, like, we had to do this, that this is a Criterion movie. <laughs> yeah, Stagecoach, it's too important to film history to, like, not say it's very important to film history. But, like, who cares? Yeah, but the whole idea of the podcast is not whether or not something is important to film history. It's specifically, are these things that are important to film history still good movies? We haven't watched it yet, but God with the Wind is one of those where, like, a lot of people have revised their opinions of it because it's such a goddamn mess. Right. As far as, like, its portrayal of black people and its portrayal of the slave system in the South, etc. But even those people will say, like, but there is an argument to be made that it's important to film history. And I'm not discounting that this movie had some sort of impact or perhaps the most impact on an entire genre that I like. I don't like this movie. I don't think that it's well made. I think, like, I'm trying to sort of format this argument more precisely than just, like, you know, 800 Westerns can't be wrong. But, like, there is clearly something here that is effective that it became such a template. That it became so influential on Westerns. Well, okay, but you were saying if Marlowe wrote a play that had basically the same plot, but not as good dialogue. Right, but what I'm saying is- All of Shakespeare's histories exist because Edward II exists, and it's not very good. It isn't very good, but I guess the argument is like- And that is the template for all of the Shakespeare history. It's not very good because it is the template in the same way that like in Old Arizona is the template. Except in Old Arizona is not a Western. It's just set in the West. Right, and that's what I'm saying. Like V. Viva Via is more of a Western than it is. If I had to give Marlowe credit for actually literally coming up with the structure and not just the sort of like set of plot incidences and it is not formally the like five act structure of the Shakespeare histories that you get out of Marlowe. It's like how to do that as a form of popular entertainment. It's like how to adapt this thing. What do you take from history? It does not strike me as directly influential in this way. To me, it is that difference between, like, the first Superman movie and Iron Man. That, like, Iron Man is, like, so clearly the exact template of every Marvel movie. <laughs> that, like, it has made $200 billion now at some point, just doing that exact template. Yeah, but I would say, like, the reverse of that is that Iron Man actually is arguably still the best one of all of them because they nailed it in one and they didn't have to like tweak it later for me like all of the subsequent mar, uh, mar Marlo, all of the subsequent marvel films 
I have wanted them to get back to that feeling that I had watching the first Iron Man. Well, sure. With you. Yes. In the theater. Yes. Iron Man is a movie so good it, it saved our friendship. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, that, but, but like, I, yes. I, I, but, but like, I, I do like. I mean, and I'm, I'm like, Guardians of the Galaxy doesn't exactly count because it's intentionally trying to fuck with that structure. Yeah. And like, I think you can make an argument the first Avengers does a lot of really interesting tweaks on it. Yeah. But it didn't give me that same, like, holy shit, we just watched the best movie feeling. And part of that is, like, it didn't improve on the structure. That's the thing, is, like, the subsequent movies have never improved on Iron Man. I will say, like, it is the touchstone. They may have come up to it, but I don't think that they've ever, like, actually done better, in my opinion. I I disagree, but this does not need to be the world's eight millionth rate the Marvel movies podcast. (laughs) And now, for the next five hours, we will talk about every Marvel Cinematic Universe property, which I can't do. I mean, part of it is that I gave up because I was like, I'm going to have to dedicate literal days of my life. Yeah. Maybe months at this point. I think it's almost 72 hours to marathon all the Marvel movies at this point. And then you've got all the TV shows and like, that's just, that's too much. Yeah. That's too much to expect of anybody. For sure. Endgame, a great title to give up on. That's actually how I feel. Is just like, oh great, I can just stop now. They told you it was fine. <laughs> yeah, they told me it was Endgame. I'm done now. I'm finally free. Thanos snapped me out of that fucking franchise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess for me, like, the issue that I have is that I don't necessarily have, like, a great deal of respect for creating the framework in the same way that you do. And I understand why you have that respect, but I, like, I I thought the movie was tedious. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it worked for me because the basic plot beats worked for me better than they worked for you. But it also, like is a bad film. There's a reason that they took this and did very different shit with it for the next 30 years. Yeah. I mean, 30s westerns in general are, like, not my jam. I like the 60s ones where they got, like, a little weirder. Yeah. And they were made by Italian guys. To be clear, one, I find it very strange to be in the position of arguing for, like, an interesting failure, because usually I think people argue for interesting failures too much. I generally don't really care and would rather watch the movie that isn't a failure. But I do think in this, there is something that is not a failure, which is the structure of this thing. And people just rip that out and use it for better movies. I kind of want that to be reflected in the score somewhere, while still saying, this is a racist movie with a lot of forgettable characters and not good dialogue. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's less that it's an interesting failure and more that it's a tedious success. The plot beats are correct. They do hit them. They drop entire arcs of characters. But yeah, I mean, you're right that it does do the thing and it does the things at the right time in the right order. Yeah, I guess it is that I have more, I have more patience for a tedious success than for an interesting failure. Right, and I'm the opposite. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. This is why we both do this together. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, I think this is the first time in a long time we're just going to have two different scores and be fine with that. Yeah. I'm not even going to try to talk you down because I agree that your score for you 
for what you're scoring it on makes sense. The same. And I'm absolutely adamant. (laughs) Yeah, no. The way you said too was like, I thought when you were like, go first, that you were going to be like, I'm going to have to talk him down from like a six. And so I was like, I don't want to be ridiculous. Let's do a four. And then you were like, two, fuck you. Then it was just like, you were so clearly never going to move. Yeah, but you, you know, but you, you said two in a way where the fuck you was implied. <laughs> that, that, like, that, like, you were never gonna move from the way you said two. <laughs> like, I had a like, whole pint that... of beer, drank all of it in one, and slammed yes. it down, and then said two. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Don't watch this movie. Watch a Western. Go watch a Western tonight. There's <laughs> 8 million of them because this movie was extremely successful. Yeah, watch like a Peckinpah Western. <laughs> or any of the spaghetti Westerns because even when they are bad, they're at least interesting failures. AV Club reminded me, because AV Club is doing a long series of articles of the biggest box office winner of every year from like 55 or something. Oh. From like the Bible. They just got to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is a great movie and a weird ass Western. Yeah. Oh, it is great. Because it's 1969 and everything's weird as shit in movies. Yeah. It's a great movie. And we'll watch it in like 10 years. So, you know. Right. Yeah. So next week. What is next week? Next week has got potential interesting failure written all over it with uh, Lawrence Olivier in Wuthering Heights. Who boy. A book I have never been able to even begin to make it through. Yeah. Oh, God, that poster. That poster is an anti-smoking ad. (laughs) I don't. I understand. It's a great anti-smoking ad. (laughs) Yeah. It's only 103 minutes long, which, you know, is um like 10% of the pages of Wuthering Heights. So, you know, there's that. So tune in next week to see if this is an interesting failure or just an incredibly boring slog. Yeah. Until then. This was every TV show from 1952 to 1958. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Rubbish. Get out and stand. I'm keeping your tongue because you ain't paid your rent. Is this the face that wrecked a thousand ships and burned the towerless tops of Ilium? Farewell. <laughs>